This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. The new film Maestro is an old Hollywood-style biopic about the composer and conductor Leonard Bernstein. Bradley Cooper stars as Bernstein. He also directed and co-wrote the film. And it's getting a big Oscars push, much like the first film Cooper directed, 2018's A Star is Born. Maestro examines Bernstein's life through the lens of his complicated marriage to his wife. She's played by Carey Mulligan. The film also interrogates Bernstein's sexuality. He's depicted as a loving, if difficult, husband. But we also see how his wife's knowledge of his affairs with men affect her and the relationship. I'm Aisha Harris. And I'm Glenn Weldon, and today we're talking about Netflix's Maestro on Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. Enter ServiceNow. It puts AI to work for people across your business, providing intelligent tools to help remove frustration and supercharge productivity. And all of that is built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Learn more at servicenow.com slash AI for people. This message comes from NPR sponsor CarMax. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because CarMax believes you shouldn't just settle for a car, you should love your car. That's why every car they sell has CarMax certified quality, so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. Don't settle, find love at first drive. Start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, close your eyes for a second. Now imagine you're on your dream vacation. No work calls to answer, no text messages to respond to, just your suitcase and an opportunity. The opportunity to just take yourself out of your routine and travel deeper. How to actually take that dream trip. That's on the Life Kit podcast from NPR. Hey, it's Linda Holmes. 2023 has been quite a year for pop culture. Barbie, Oppenheimer, Fast Car, Succession, Cocaine Bear... And we have loved talking about all of it here on the show. We're excited about everything we'll dig into in 2024, hopefully with your support. This is where we want to say a big thank you to our Pop Culture Happy Hour Plus supporters and anyone listening who already donates to public media. And to anyone out there who isn't a supporter yet, right now is the time to get behind the NPR network, especially with our journalists gearing up for an important election year. Supporting public media now takes just a few minutes and makes a real difference in what's possible moving forward. Join NPR Plus or make a tax-deductible donation now at donate.npr.org slash happy. And thanks. Joining us today is NPR correspondent Anastasia Tsoukas. Hey, Anastasia. Hey there, Glenn. 
Welcome, welcome. So Maestro begins with an aging Leonard Bernstein being interviewed about his life. He's played by Bradley Cooper. We flash back to Bernstein as a young man, his first big break, his meeting and marrying his wife Felicia, played by Carrie Mulligan. These sequences take place in black and white. What follows is a whistle-stop tour through the major events in Bernstein's life and career, driven by scenes in which we watch him passionately conducting orchestras, both the work of classical composers as well as his own music. These later sequences take place in color. Maestro is directed and co-written by Cooper. He co-wrote this film with Josh Singer, one of the screenwriters of Spotlight, The Post, and First Man. It has already made many critics' top 10 films of 2023 lists, and it's streaming on Netflix. Anastasia... You have forgotten more about Leonard Bernstein than Aisha and I have ever known or will ever know combined. <laughs> so this is entirely your wheelhouse. And I was watching this film. I was thinking, I want to hear from Anastasia. So hit me. What would you think? I actually really liked it. You know, obviously, I have a big connection professionally to Bernstein's music. I have worked as a classical music critic and journalist for a long time now. I also have a little bit of a personal connection in that I didn't never studied with him. I never played under him. Uh-huh. A fair number of my friends did, especially in his super louche later years. <laughs> you know, classical music is a pretty small world, so it's not that many degrees of separation at all ever. Mm-hmm. And especially when you have a towering figure like Bernstein. And I thought the film really did a lot to describe who he was and sort of this extraordinary world in which he lives and sort of the the many musical universes he inhabited, Broadway and classical music and sort of the public-facing stuff, you know, all the TV stuff and the stuff that's like super, super nerdy and insider. Mm -hmm. Later in the film, there's this magnificent sequence in which he's conducting Mahler's Second Symphony in a cathedral Mm -hmm. and is one of the longest stretches of music I have seen on film in a very, very long time, sort of uninterrupted. And the camera sort of spins around Bernstein and makes him, as ever, the center of the universe. But I thought it demonstrates so much about why some people love this music so much. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was one of the most elegant and gracious sort of openings to this world that can feel very hermetically sealed off to outsiders, Mm -hmm. which I really, really appreciated. Is the film... Powerful. I don't know. A lot of the dialogue, like the most bracing and corrosive bits of dialogue, are taken literally word for word out of Bernstein's daughter's biography of her father, the Snoopy float line that came directly from Jamie's book. But the amazing thing to me is that I thought it was a very calibrated look at him. I think it didn't apologize for the fact that he could be this narcissistic monster of a person. And I thought it did a very, very good job of not sort of deifying Bernstein, which, you know, in classical music, sort of the default stance is put icons on a pedestal. Uh Don't talk about their personal failings or flaws or anything like that. Being narcissistic, for example. I'm sure we'll get to this, but I thought this film was really about Felicia, his wife. Sure. In a lot of ways. Aisha, where'd you come down? Well, in the words of a different musical genius, uh, to paraphrase at least, makeup, 
beautiful makeup. <laughs> For me, the the best thing about this, aside from Carrie Mulligan's performance, was the makeup. Kazu Hiro, mm-hmm. who <laughs> has won an Oscar for doing The Darkest Hour, which is a movie we, I, I know we, Glenn, you and I did not like. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> but like, I, I was actually kind of fascinated by more so the aesthetics and the sort of uh, cinematic choices that Cooper is making here. Because, you know, the makeup does look fantastic. I think it's probably some of the best old age makeup I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's also been some kerfluffle around his nose and the fact that he uses in a, a prosthetic nose. When the first images came out, a lot of people were calling it uh, an example of quote unquote Jew face, uh, that it was anti-Semitic. You know, first of all, the nose does not really actually look that big. Mm-hmm. I, I think it actually fits his face the way the makeup happens. And also his kids came out in defense of Riley Cooper and said, you know, we actually think it looks great. And also like our father had a big, beautiful nose. Like, why not? Mm-hmm. So and, and but I I think for me, I found this it left me mostly cold in part because this movie is a movie that just feels like it has to show you how much of a movie it is. Uh-huh. The dialogue is very classic Hollywood, mid-Atlantic. We're going to talk like this, see? And I'm, yeah, and and, and it, it felt very uh, put upon. And there were moments where I thought he was clearly trying to be, he was trying to make this seem like his All That Jazz. And All That Jazz is kind of a masterpiece. And also All That Jazz is a director and a creator sort of interrogating himself uh, as opposed to, you know, Bradley Cooper, who's interrogating someone who is not at all him. Mm-hmm. But it did feel as though those were the aims he was making because that movie is in part about an artist's failures as a as a husband, as a partner. And this movie is doing that. And I don't think it does itself any favors to draw those comparisons because this is not all that jazz. So yeah, it, it left me a little cold and I'm sure we'll get into it, but I think some of the things that it's trying to peel away at when it comes to like this idea of art and the artist and a creator versus someone in the public eye and sort of that tension, it does a lot of talking about it, but I don't think it really actually interrogates it like on an on an like artistic level within the film itself. Huh. Mm. Huh, that's interesting. Okay. You know, for a lot of reasons you bring up, uh, I also had a, a tough time with this and most of my issues came down to Cooper's performance. I mean, I kind of felt distracted through this entire movie, not, uh, not engaged. And again, we are in the clear minority, Aisha and I. I think most people are in Anastasia's corner be- and many critics love it. It's the mm-hmm. kind of thing the industry loves to pelt with Oscars and I think yes. they will mm-hmm. uh, come Oscar time. But this thing uh, to me was all artifice, all surface, all Cooper's kind of try hard affect. I mean, he's clearly done his research. I, I just don't think he let go of that research enough because he watched a lot of interviews with Bernstein. That's clear. And he's doing an accurate impersonation, but he seems not to have realized that the way people talk in interviews is a performance, mm-hmm. right? So what we're getting here is a performance of a performance. And I know the conceit of the movie is that he's being interviewed, but I kept waiting for some of that, um, diffidence, that archness, that very performative quality to drop away in the dramatized scenes. But there was no modulation at all. Yeah, I just don't think he dug under it enough. It's kind of like he's wearing the skin of this character, not actually becoming him. And that that's reflected in a lot of the choices the film makes, Aisha, as you mentioned. The choice to film those early scenes in black and white and have everyone talk like Nick and Nora Charles, uh, <laughs> that also felt false and distracting to me because it was an attempt to evoke the past, not by 
digging in and actually presenting the past, but by couching it in the familiar, by aping the the signifiers of a of a cinematic, abstract past. Not how people looked and talked and lived back then, yeah. but how they looked and talked and lived in movies. Yeah. Bernstein and Felicia did have those crazy mid-Atlantic accents. Mm-hmm. I don't think he actually caught Bernstein's pace or cadence speaking. I don't think he got the voice very well at all. Mm. It did feel very artificial and put on. On the other hand, like I never sat in their kitchen, right? But they were very <laughs> performative people, period. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I get that. I get that. It's just that, and this is a question I have for you both. I, I mean, like having said all that stuff I said, a thing I still can't figure out is why, you know, Mulligan did everything Cooper did. Mm-hmm. I had a much easier time with her. I think she just felt less effortful and actorly than he did. Look, I think part of that is just that, like, Carrie Mulligan, I think, is a stronger actor, performer. But at the same time, with Bradley Cooper, and this kind of goes into sort of the issue that always arises with this kind of movie, is that we've now known Bradley Cooper. He's kind of on this evolution of his persona, right? Like, when most of us or a lot of us were first introduced to him was probably maybe a Hangover, which is, you know, the broiest of broy movies. Certainly wasn't his uh, first role, but like I think that's when he really stepped out and we knew his name. And since then, you know, he's had A Star is Born and he has, as you said, Glenn, he's kind of become this tryhard. <laughs> and, and the tryhard persona does not wear well on artists. <laughs> um, it can distract from the work they're doing. I also think like, He's basically this year's Will Smith when Will Smith was campaigning for King Richard. Like, Uh this is this is what's happening. Like, (laughs) there's all this like showing the work and proving how much research went into it. Like, you can't pretend we don't know who Bradley Cooper is. He's never going to sort of disappear into that role. Whereas Carrie Mulligan, I don't know really anything about Carrie Mulligan outside of the role she's played. Mm -hmm. It's just hard to let go of like... All of this. And also, Bradley Cooper is not just acting. He's also, again, directing. He's responsible for all of this. So for me, at least, that that plays a part in it. I mean, I also think that sort of that mantle of like having to live up to a thing mm-hmm. feels very weighty here and, and very, as you both have said, sort of that certainly sort of seeps through everything, especially with Cooper. And I also think a lot about the the sort of background history of this. Like, at one point, Spielberg was going to direct it. At one point, Scorsese was going to direct it. And Yeah, instead, they're both executive producers on this. Sure. I agree that Cooper has a very hard time sort of slipping out of what he knows and what he, and I think, anticipates that some of the audience knows already. As you said, sort of embody Bernstein in his own way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's very effortful. Yeah. No, no, that's it. And as you mentioned, Anastasia, that scene with Mahler in the cathedral, in interviews, as we mentioned, he did do a lot of interviews, Cooper has said that he knew this film has what he calls a nuclear power, Bernstein's music, just as A Star is Born had a nuclear power in Gaga's voice. Mm. And it's not, I'm not saying he's using it as a crutch by any means, but he is, it's driving the film in a big way. So, So talk to me, Anastasia, about the use of music here. So that I thought was one of the real strengths of this movie is Mm. there were some very, very, very clever slipping in of various bits of Bernstein's own music, 
including some not very well-known stuff at all, used as a score, uh, as well as sort of a character, Mm -hmm. so to speak. And I thought that was extremely well done. I mean, we hear bits from sort of the big numbers that everybody knows. There's You hear a little bit of West Side Story. You hear a little bit of Wonderful Town. But there's Mm -hmm. also stuff you don't know, or lots of people don't know, like his piece of Quiet Place and some of the piano music and things like that. I thought that was really clever and beautifully done. Um, I know Cooper brought in, as sort of an advisor, he got close to members of the New York Philharmonic or staff of the New York Philharmonic. He leaned very heavily on the conductor, Yannick Nézé-Séguin, who actually conducts that cathedral scene for real. It's a beautiful way of introducing some really powerful music to a much wider audience, which I'm always going to be an evangelist for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I will say there was a really funny moment, I thought, where he uses a, a bit of music from West Side Story, sort of a Jets and Sharks moment, mm-hmm. uh, when Felicia is like sees one of uh, Leonard's lovers and feels like threatened by it. And, like that punctuation mm-hmm. was, I was like, oh, this is, I laughed out loud. I was like, this is actually kind of funny. I liked that little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now I should note that as part of this movie's Oscar push, they are sending out packets to critics and my packet included the screenplay. And whenever I find myself this far out of step with critical consensus, I always want to check my work. Mm. So I sat down with the screenplay because I felt so sure that the script must be filled with those biopic moments I hate. <laughs> Uh, but the screenplay's clean. It doesn't have any of the stuff that I could see. My issue is not the screenplay. It's the flourishes around the stiltedness of Cooper's performance, the phoniness of that black and white stuff, the fact that later in the film, Bernstein is driving up to a place in a convertible with a radio blasting, and it just so happens to be blasting REM's end of the world as we know it, just as they get to the Leonard Bernstein. Yes. That is not in the script, by the way. I went back and checked because, like, come on. Uh, That is a directorial choice Mm -hmm. that his music supervisor should have just talked him out of, just slapped his hand and said, nope, nope, (laughs) not for you. Slap it away. Uh, There's a series of choices going on here. Mm -hmm. And some of them feel very awkward and some of them feel artificial. Many of them felt artificial. I have to say... The dance sequence in which Cooper takes a spin across the stage, I was like... That was the all that jazz moment for me. I was like, what are we doing here? And I thought, this is self-indulgence, and it's not a commentary on Bernstein's self-indulgence. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Yes, that's exactly it. That is what I'm trying to articulate. (laughs) That's exactly what I'm trying to say here. Yeah. Wait, can I ask another question? I guess we've talked about Felicia, but like, what do you think of the way this relationship sort of unfolds? Because to me... I feel like we've seen this many times where it's like the wife or the woman, the the partner of the, you know, tortured male genius. And I wonder if you thought that it was trying to say anything new or different about this role or if it was trying to deconstruct it in any way. Um, For me, what it was trying to do is give Carrie Mulligan something to chew on, you know, something to really sink her teeth into. There's a moment where she's describing that you shouldn't feel sorry for her because she knew exactly what she was getting into. And she's she's staring down the barrel of the camera when she gives that little monologue. Mm -hmm. It's my own arrogance to think I could survive on what he could give. It's just so ironic. I would look at everyone, even my own children, with such pity because of their longing for his attention. It was it was sort of a banner I wore so proudly. I don't need. I don't need. It's again. It's, she's got the accent. She's got the mannerisms, but it doesn't feel mannered. It, it feels like someone's speaking from the heart, which is kind of what I missed whenever Cooper was on screen. How about you, Anastasia? 
I felt like we were watching a portrait of a woman who said, I thought I understood the choices I was making. And so over the course of the movie, we see that unfold in a trajectory that maybe she didn't necessarily yeah. fully mm-hmm. understand what the all the ramifications were going to be. I thought it was pretty powerful. And, it, and again, you know, there's so much hero worship around Bernstein, and Felicia is sort of a footnote at best. Yeah. I thought that that just even surfacing her story it was was a pretty powerful thing. Yeah, what I was worried about is this would be, you know, this is a great man and all the people whose lives he destroyed around him. It's not quite that, but it's not quite warts and all either. It is more nuanced than perhaps I gave credit for being at the top. I mean, I think honestly you have a point where if you want to see him through his sexuality, that's one kind of film. And I don't think that's this the film that this wants to be. This is if you see him through his music, right? That's so hard to answer. I don't know if he, and again, I can't jump into his mind, but there are certainly people in that world who I think are hyper aware of their power mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. hyper aware of their influence. And I think the sense I've always gotten is that he thought of himself as musician among other musicians. And I don't know if he really wielded that, you know, sort of in, in manipulative ways. Mm-hmm. And certainly that's not something this film goes to. But again, I you know, maybe people who knew him would have a very different perspective on that. But that's not the sense that I have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This isn't tar, you know, this isn't a movie that's interested in necessarily his power in a way, or at least his power in that way. It's it's him sort of recognizing he has his power, but also not really being fully aware that like how it affects his wife and how it affects his wife being in the shadow. Like there's a a literal scene where she is in his shadow uh, dramatically Mm -hmm. while he's performing on stage. Again, this is this movie. Uh, Nothing is subtle. And that aspect of his sexuality kind of feels like it's just kind of sprinkled uh, as opposed to really fully probed. I appreciate the fact that this wasn't a film saying he was such a great artist. It doesn't matter how he treated people. Right, exactly. Uh, this conversation was a lot more interesting than the conversation I thought we were going to have because y'all have pulled things out of this movie that I didn't get. And and, and that's on me. But I'm, I'm so glad we had this conversation. So uh, we want to know what you think about Maestro. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PCHH. That brings us to the end of our show. Anastasia Tsoukas, Aisha Harris, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This episode was produced by Ramel Wood and edited by Jessica Reedy. Audio engineering was performed by Neil Rauch and Patrick Murray. And Hello, Come In provides our theme music. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. I'm Glenn Weldon, and we'll see you all tomorrow. Do you ever wish you could get your stories in three hours rather than three minutes? Or maybe you're sick of doom-scrolling, getting your news in bits and pieces. That is where Embedded comes in. We bring you documentary series that will change the way you think about things. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to Embedded for moments that stay with you. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Voices that resonate. (laughs) Stories that change the way you think about your life. How, How did we get here? The Embedded Podcast is NPR's home for original documentary series. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I hear you have a birthday coming up. Yeah, you. If you're listening to this, that means you have a birthday coming up eventually. And here at LifeKit, we want it to be a special one. 
magic can happen and good luck can happen and serendipity can happen if we're open to it. How to have a good birthday, even if you're not a birthday person. That's on the Life Kit podcast from NPR.